So if you just uh, go ahead and keep your place in that um, text there, that's what we're going to walk through this morning. Um, but first, obviously, I'm not Jim. Uh, so if you're new here and you're wondering why I'm up here, that's because Jim is in Charleston. With uh, We have a, a close connection with the country of Rwanda, and there is a pastor that's in from Rwanda uh, that we are uh, partners with that uh, they are hanging out in Charleston today at the uh, at Hope Church down there with Derek Roberts. So uh, we, we pray they had a, they have a great time this morning. I know that we had a great time yesterday uh, and throughout this weekend as we were in Synod and Convocation. So without further ado, let us pray and we will get in and tackle this text this morning. O oh God, whose blessed Son came into the world, that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. Grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure. And when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Loosen this up a little bit. <laughs> All right. Before we get into this text, i got a question to ask you. Have you ever called out to someone in a crowd? Maybe someone you knew from high school. Maybe it's an old friend, a best friend, an acquaintance that you knew. Maybe it was someone famous, right? Not too often that we're in the presence of someone who might be famous. But you're calling out to them, and the people that are around you, they're surrounding you, and they're looking at you like you're absolutely crazy. Like, what? This guy's not going to, he's not going to notice you, right? You're just some little Joe Schmo from, you know, a podunk town. He's not going to remember who you are, right? Maybe your best friend would remember. They're looking at you like you're absolutely crazy. So, as many of you know, I graduated from the Parkersburg High School. Class of, thank you. Class of 1999. It was the last graduated class of the 1900s. That's that's my claim to fame. However, I graduated with, with a fellow. His name was Nick Swisher. I'm sure everyone knows who that is. If you've spent any time here in the area or if you've lived here, you grew up here, chances are you knew exactly who he was, right? He was a three-sport three athlete, lettered, baseball, basketball, football. Um, a nice guy in school. I remember uh, spending some time, like, had class with him, and we actually had Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is really hilarious, because I was neither an athlete, but I was a Christian, so I went and hung out. Uh, one day, <laughs> Nick, Nick actually came in, and thought it was really funny. He leaned over to me, and he said, I'm just here for the Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it was only $2 per, uh, per sandwich, so yes, <laughs> I could see why. But many of you know, he went on and played professional baseball. So, fast forward to 2006, I had the opportunity to uh, fly to... Or, drive actually to Boston. We went to a game at Fenway Park. It was the Oakland A's versus the Boston Red Sox. So I walk into the, the stadium, you know, find my seats, the old seats, the blue wooden seats that hurt when you sit in them for long extended periods of time with a green pole in my way. and paid way too much money for them. But that's neither here nor there. It was a good experience. But as, as I'm walking into the ballpark, finding my seats and, and then going down to home plate as they're taking batting practice, I decide to yell out to Nick Swisher as he's behind the uh, cage getting ready to step in and take his, his uh, swings. He turns around and kind of looks at me, and you know, obviously there's some lunatic that's yelling at him, something about Parkersburg and Go Big Reds and all this other uh, funny, funny things. But he did kind of turn around and, and wave, but to this day I'm not even sure he knew who I was. Right? He probably didn't know me from Adam. Like, who's this weirdo, right? <laughs> but I think, again, I think we can relate to that, right? And I think we can relate to this passage this morning, especially when we look at disciples and how their response was to when Jesus started to talk about his death again for the third time. Or maybe we can relate to the persistence of the blind man in his prayer and in calling out to Jesus. So let's look briefly then at Jesus foretelling his death and the disciples' response. We're going to see that the disciples are blind. They're blind to their need. They're blind 
to this, they have this spiritual sight and they're blind to it. They don't realize that they need this spiritual sight to see who Christ is. So let's take 31 through 34. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they, the disciples, understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Jesus and his disciples, they're now on their way uh, to Jerusalem. As you know, we've, we've, we've encountered many different parables and things and such as we've gone forward through Luke. Jesus encountered many people and his, his proclaimed the gospel to them and healed them and told parables. But as they're on this journey, Jesus turns to his disciples and he starts to talk to them about his death as he's done on previous occasions within the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Now, I think one thing to, to note here that's very important is that, that Jesus mentions the Gentiles when he's talking about his death this time. Previous times, he only mentioned the Jews. What Jesus is doing here is he, that he is saying that the Gentiles and the Jews, everyone is now complicit in my death. No one is exempt. We've all sinned, right? We read through Scripture, we all have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. No one seeks after God. And this is what Jesus is saying. Everyone's complicit in my death. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Now, it's probably safe to assume here that, obviously, the the Gentiles, excuse me, the disciples stood around and probably looked at each other with this weird look on their face. Like, what is he talking about? Why is Jesus talking about dying? You're you're not going to die, Jesus. You're the king. You're the king of kings. You're the ruler. There was a misconception of who the Messiah would be and how he would come. They thought he would come as a ruler and as a king with a sword and slay all of their enemies. But we know that's not how Jesus came, right? And here's Jesus talking about dying and going into detail about his death, and the disciples still, they're, they're, they don't get it. The text tells us that this saying was hidden from them. Even Jesus' closest friends couldn't understand what was taking place or what was about to take place. I think this plays well with the previous passages that we have gone through, looking at the rich young ruler and the Pharisee. They didn't realize, or they didn't receive Jesus in the same manner as the tax collector and the children did. They had no, no clue who this Messiah was. The tax collector and the children, they took Jesus at his word. He knew who he was. Kind of like we'll see with the, the blind beggar going forward. See, this, these disciples in this path, in this pa- passage, are now in the same boat as the rich ruler, as the Pharisees. But how many of us could fall into that same category as well? How many of us could look at the works of Christ in his word and see Jesus for who he is? yet still suffer from this state of spiritual blindness. We claim to be followers of Christ, yet we have a difficult time trusting and believing in who He is and what the Word says about Him. How well do we know Christ, the true Christ of Scripture? See, though the disciples could see Jesus, they could see His miracles, they were still blind to what they truly needed. They lacked this spiritual sight. They were spiritually blind. As we move forward through this passage, we see how this blind man, how he was blind physically, yet... He knew he had a need that was beyond this physical sight, beyond his physical blindness and his impairment. Let's move on through 35 and 39 and see how the blind man has this spiritual sight. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Those who were in front of him rebuked him. Telling him to be silent, he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. One of the, the neatest things I think about the human body is that when you suffer some kind of an impairment, such as being blind, like this man did, that one of, one of your five senses is like an overcompensation for this. I'm talking like daredevil stuff, if you guys are with me, right? 
No? Anybody? Okay, cool. It's all right. But, but, but his, so senses are kind of overcompensated for. So if you're, if you're blind, you might be able to hear a little bit better. If you're blind and you're deaf, well, hopefully you taste better, right? Food-wise. Not you tasting better, but food-wise. Now, I think this is absolutely remarkable, right? When you, when you, when you study this, when you look, and I even, I googled it just to make sure that I was, I was right on this, because, you know, there's always like fake news out there. (laughs) But, so we don't know if this was the case with the, with the blind man, right? We don't, we don't know if this is the case, but he heard. He heard a commotion coming from the distance. And since he was blind, he couldn't see Jesus. So he asked, who, what is this? Who, who is this? And the people cried out, it's Jesus of Nazareth. So he heard this commotion from a ways off. He heard something coming. The blind man, to, to begin with, he saw something that was beyond Jesus, even though he couldn't see him. He could see his need. And he had two needs. His eyes, since they were covered with this darkness, the man needed sight, physical sight. So when Jesus gave him the opportunity to say what he needed, his answer was simple and it was direct. He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. He also needed money. Now, as a, as a direct result of his blindness, this man was in absolute poverty. It says that day after day, he sat by the side of the road begging. Imagine that the, the man is sitting on the side of the road with a, I don't know if they, had, they didn't have tin cups. What am I talking about? They had it with a cup or something, and he's asking for, for, for money. He's begging for alms. He's, he's, he's begging, saying, I need, I need money to you know, get food for this day. What else could he do? He was blind. He had no way to earn a steady income. As a blind man living in that culture that made no precision provision for the disabled, he was destitute. He didn't live in a country that you know, gave out funding for, for, for homeless or for, for needs in that manner. See, the blind man, see, he could see his need, and out of his misery, he cried out for salvation. Mercy was his only plea. So he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, mercy here suggests that he may have perceived, again, his spiritual need just as clearly as his physical need. At a minimum, the, the man was asking for physical healing. But in its fullest sense, he was asking for mercy. And mercy is the love of God for sinners. The grace by which he rescues us from our lost and our sorry condition that sink in. Mercy is the love of God for sinners. The grace by which he rescues us from our lost or sorry condition. That's heavy and that's deep, right? The mercy is what David cried out for when he prayed, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And mercy is what the tax collector prayed for. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, whether or not he realized it, when the blind man asked for mercy, he was asking Jesus for something more than his sight. He was begging for his salvation. He was begging. He was pleading for mercy. And as we all know, the first step is always then to admit that we have a problem. And many can relate to that. And the blind man who sat by the side of the road, he saw this need for his Savior. He knew there was a problem. In fact, he saw it much more clearly than did the rich ruler. came just verses before this. The man's material prosperity hindered him from seeing the spiritual poverty he was in. And when he went away, he went away unsaved. As we've read in the text last week, See, he would have been much better. He would have been better off if he was like this blind man, even a beggar who was able to see this spiritual poverty. This is what we all need to see, our need for Jesus. And more specifically, we need to see our need for him to save, save us from the blindness of our sin. We still have those blind areas that we, that we miss. And that's why community is so important. Right? It helps us to see those, those, those peripheral areas that we can't see. Now, the second thing the blind man saw then was, was Jesus. 
He saw who he was. He didn't see him physically. He saw who he was spiritually. Other people were calling out to him, Jesus of Nazareth. But, but the blind man called Jesus, son of David. This title doesn't appear much in the Gospels, but it would have been familiar to anyone in those days who knew the Old Testament. But what did it mean? Why did the blind man use this when he cried out to Jesus? It meant that Jesus was the Messiah. And the blind man knew it. This was the Savior whom God had promised to send. By calling Jesus Son of David, the blind man was acknowledging Him as the Savior whom God had sent, who promised to send. Excuse me. This is something that the disciples missed. When Jesus told them that everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets would be accomplished. They missed this. It was hidden from them. In fact, we'll learn later on, as if, if you spend any more time with us, that in Luke, at the very end, Jesus starts to tell who He is from the Word, from the Scriptures. He reveals Himself to them in that way. But see, other people around Him saw Jesus just as a preacher and a miracle worker, a great teacher, much like our current cultural context. You ask anybody who you think Jesus is, and they usually say, well, He was a good teacher. He was a good teacher. There was something more. The blind man saw Him as the Savior, and He received Him as Lord. He has this, this spiritual sight that goes way beyond only the physical. So let us look and see what the blind man's spiritual sight produces in him. Let's continue through verses 40 through 43, and we will see that spiritual sight is a persistent, personal, and productive faith in Christ. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him and glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Even before Jesus performed this miracle, which is which is an amazing miracle when we think about it, the blind man could see more than most people. The way he received his sight, both his spiritual and his physical sight, was by grace through faith. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. See, for the blind man, believing was seeing was seeing by believing, by having faith in who Christ was. It was his faith that made him well. Yes, it was Jesus who healed him, but the man received Jesus by faith, and, and faith was the channel by which he received his salvation. I think B.B. Warfield right here was right when he had said that it is not even faith that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith, Christ himself. This is what saved the man by the Jericho road. Faith in Jesus. Therefore, his example shows us what it means to put our own faith in Christ. What, uh, what is true, truly saving faith? Right. This is true saving faith. When we place our faith in Christ. But what is true saving faith? What are some of the elements of that? We see that in this text. But to give you a, a definition or something to work with, Anglican Catechism, to be a Christian... Thus, to have faith means that I believe the gospel is true. I acknowledge that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead to rule over me. I entrust myself to him as my Savior, and I obey him as my Lord. So let's look at the blind man's example now. and We're going to look at it a little closely and see what it shows us. So first, is his example shows us that faith, true saving faith, is persistent. See, the blind man did something more than simply call out to Jesus. He kept crying for mercy until Jesus stopped and healed him. Think back to the persistent widow. She was persistent in her prayers. He continued to shout for mercy over the noise of the crowd, and despite the crazy looks, despite the crowd telling him to shut up, like me waving down Nick Swisher, shut up! 
People were trying to stop him from making a scene. They were embarrassed. But here's the beautiful thing. The more they tried to get him to quiet down, louder and louder he shouted, begging for Jesus to have mercy on him. He would not give up. He was persistent. If his, if his faith was persistent and, and if it wasn't, then he, Jesus would have never, it would have never caught his attention, right? Secondly, there's something else that this tells us. His, his faith is personal. He called directly on Jesus for his salvation. He did this with his whole being, everything that was within him. One, one commentator said this. He said, the essence of faith is to come to Christ. Faith manifests itself clearly and plainly when sinners come into the presence of Christ with all their sin and all their distress. The sinner who does this believes. And I think we could add to this that the sinner who does this is saved. A personal faith in Christ is saving faith. Now, there, there are three elements, though, to, to this, to this personal faith, right? Let's look, let's look at it real quick. Number one, there's knowledge, which is the intellectual dimension of faith. It is impossible to have faith in Christ without knowing who He is and what He has done. Heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Second, there is belief, which is assent. This means accepting the message of Christ. Not just knowing what Scripture says about Jesus, but truly believing from the heart that it is really true. And the last element of this personal saving faith is trust. This is the volitional dimension of faith, which offers this unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ. And all these proceed from a person who has been regenerated or brought to life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now the last example that we see from the blind beggar's faith is that it is productive. It produces something. It says, and immediately he received, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. There's the, there's, there it is. There's your, it produces something. It produces fruit. It also affected those that were around him. His faith was contagious. It says all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. It was, it was persistent. It was personal. It was productive. Faith that saves is alone, but faith that saves is never alone. I think is how the term goes. The quote. It always produces this work. This is what this is what happens when someone comes to saving faith in Christ. It leads to a whole life of worship and obedience. This is this production, this this fruit. As soon as the blind man could see Jesus, he became one of his followers. Having been saved by faith, he started to live by faith. faith saving faith always leads to a life of obedience, as we see in Romans one five. And once he was saved, he started to fulfill the purpose for which he was made which was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Again, this joy of salvation was infectious as other people saw what God had done and started glorifying God, started praising God. It's important to note that when God rescues you and saves you, it produces something completely different in us than what we normally have produced in ourselves, right? And other people catch on. It may take some time, but eventually people see it and people start praising God because of the work that He has been doing in you. See, true faith produces joy in God and a commitment to follow Jesus forever. This is a good way to test our relationship. Ask yourself these questions. Do I experience joy in the worship of God? Does my life point other people to Jesus in a way that makes them want to follow Him too? I'm asking myself these questions as well. If I say that I am trusting in Jesus, my faith should be evident in the way I worship, in the way I witness, in the way that I live. My action, the way things flow, is there fruit showing for this salvation. See, the story of the blind man by the side of the road is it's a call to a persistent, personal, and productive faith in Jesus. And one day soon, those that have faith will see Jesus. You too see Jesus? If you will, if you want to see Jesus, then you must believe and trust in Him and enjoy Him and follow Him. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank You.
this morning. Thank you for what this text brings to us. I thank you for uh, just those questions. I pray that we can ask ourselves those questions. I pray that we would see a direct result of the fruit that you've worked out through our lives with people praising and rejoicing God around us. I pray that that would give us a, a passion to reach those who are around us and reach those that we can reach, Lord, to proclaim your gospel to the people. When I thank you for your word as it went forth, Lord, I pray that would do the work that it was intended to do and not return void. We just thank you for all of these things in your name. Amen.